Good afternoon. It's a joy to be here today. What a blessing God has given us uh, to have such a spiritual family, have such an opportunity to remember the price that he paid so that we could be his children, so we could have hope. If you've been keeping up with your Bible reading, you've probably realized that there is a lot of death within the scriptures. Uh, The death of an entire rebellious generation in the wilderness, the death of all the corrupt Canaanite nations that we started reading about in the book of Joshua as Israel conquers the promised land and wipes out the inhabitants. Frequently, as we read through Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy and Numbers, uh, we see that God instituted the death penalty for a variety of different sins within the law. Uh, Not to mention the continual death of animals in the sacrificial system, But as we've read through this, this really shouldn't surprise us because all the way back at the very beginning of Genesis, God told Adam and Eve from day one that if they disobeyed, they would surely die. And in one way or another, every generation thereafter experienced the same consequences for their sins. The wages of sin has always been death. And really in essence, Every single sin of the law had a death penalty, Uh, either of the one who committed this sin or of some atoning sacrifice on their behalf. God was continually reinforcing this idea that the wages of sin is death. No sin was exempted from the death penalty. No sin was to be minimized. So what should surprise us as we read the text is not that God destroyed the world in a flood, but that God in his mercy preserved eight souls in the ark. What should surprise us is not that God rained down fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah, but that he told Abraham that he would spare the city if there were even 10 righteous people in it. And even when there weren't, he still delivered Lot and his family from their midst. What should surprise us is not that God had Israel wipe out the corrupt Canaanites, but that he told Abraham they were going to have to wait for 400 years until after his his death uh, until the iniquity of the Amorite was full. The fact that there is anything in the scriptures beyond Genesis 3 (laughs) is a statement of God's mercy, God's long-suffering, God's grace towards us. But there are times in the Bible that God's judgment upon sin is swift and decisive. And I want us to consider three of those instances today. One we've already covered in our Bible reading, Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu. Uh, We'll also in time come up on the story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel and in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles and the story of Ananias and Sapphira that we have covered in our our Bible class on Sundays uh, quite some time ago. But here are all people who were suddenly struck dead by the Lord in response to their sin. And I want us to ask the question, why? Why in these three instances did God suddenly bring his judgment instead of waiting 400 years? why, Why did God in very swift and decisive way bring his judgment upon these people. You you think of all the people that God could have struck dead for their sins. You know, why why not Queen Jezebel? Why not uh, King Manasseh? 
why, why not Emperor Nero or Emperor Domitian who are bringing great persecution upon God's people? Why not Hitler or Stalin? Why these people? I think what we'll see is that these weren't impulsive outbursts of anger on God's part, where God just couldn't stand it any longer, and so he lashed out against these people. Now, these were very intentional acts of judgment, very intentional teaching moments for God's people. In fact, all three occurred at the very beginning of some new period for God's people. Nadab and Abihu happens at the very beginning of the institution of the tabernacle and the Levitical priesthood. Um, Uzzah happens at the inauguration of Jerusalem as God's holy city, the place where his name would dwell. And Ananias and Sapphira happen at the establishing of the New Testament church very early on. And so these are three times that God chose to act in a very decisive and, and very powerful way to teach his people a lesson in preparation for uh, this new uh, stage of their service to him. And so if these are intentional teaching moments, the question we need to ask is what are we intended to learn? What is God teaching us through this? What message was God driving home by these powerful demonstrations of judgment? Uh, What is God showing us that he is dead serious about, so to speak? Well, let's start in Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu. If you want to read with me here in Leviticus chapter 10, starting in verse 1, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Why was it that God lashed out in in direct judgment and fire consuming Nadab and Abihu? Well, we're not really left to question that. Verse 3 of this passage tells us. He says, uh, Moses says, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified before all the people. I will be glorified. The New American Standard says, I will be treated as holy. I will be honored. And so, first of all, we see that God is serious about worship, about showing him glory and honor. Uh, The way in which Nadab and Abihu were approaching God in worship was not treating him as holy was not sanctify him properly uh, in their hearts or in the sight of the people, was not giving him the glory, honor, and reverence that he deserved. They weren't being serious enough about worship and about the God whom they were worshiping. Verse 1 tells us that they offered strange, or the ESV says unauthorized fire that God had not commanded. Well, what exactly is that talking about? We see that God had given them detailed instructions about what it was he did desire in worship. If you want to look back for a moment in Exodus chapter 30, we see this exact word, this strange or unauthorized incense here in Exodus 30 and verse 9. As God gives them instructions about this altar of incense, he says, You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, or you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Uh, 
Uh, and so they had been warned against this very thing, not to offer unauthorized or strange foreign incense, something different than what God had, in fact, commanded. And later on in that very chapter, Exodus chapter 30 and verse 34, God gives very direct and precise instructions about the type of incense they were to bring. Exodus 30 verse 34, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacti and otica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each shall there be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer seasoned with salt pure and holy you shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where i shall meet with you it shall be most holy for you he goes on to say that it shouldn't be used for any other purpose here, this wasn't to be an incense that they would, you know, burn in their homes, that they would burn somewhere else. This was to be holy, to be set apart, be very specific and precise, exactly what God had ordered. They were not to bring any unauthorized incense or unauthorized fire. But ultimately, the problem here is that by taking these instructions lightly, Nadab and Abihu were showing a lack of reverence for God. And that's what God addresses here in verse 3. It's not that, that God here is, is throwing a temper tantrum because they brought him the wrong kind of cologne and he doesn't like how it smells. No, the focus here is on the heart of the worshiper, the heart that would not take seriously the instructions that God had provided. And in so doing, here Nadab and Abihu were showing a lack of regard, a lack of seriousness for the role that they played in bringing worship to the Lord. They weren't sanctifying him. They weren't giving him the glory and honor that he deserved. This strange fire was an outward reflection of an inward attitude that wasn't taking worship seriously enough and was not taking God seriously enough. And ultimately, this is the same problem that we see a thousand years later in Israel's history in the days of Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, uh, as God addresses the priests there. In Malachi chapter 1, if you want to look in verse 6, beginning, God says to the priests, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Later on in verse 10, he says, Oh, that someone would close the doors of the temple, that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. What's the problem here? Did, did the blind and the lame just not smell as good? Did they not taste as good to God? Well, no, it was about what that reflected about the heart of the worshiper. You, you might think that the people, as they brought these kinds of sacrifices, think, well, what, what, what's the big deal? Why does God even care? In fact, we're the ones who are eating the sacrifice, not God. Either that or it's burned up entirely on the altar. And it, it's much more economical to, to bring these animals to the Lord. <laughs> What, what's the big difference? Why does it even matter? And that attitude that says, well, what's the big deal? Is the very attitude that God is addressing in Nadab and Abihu. The very attitude that God is urging his people to make sure that they never develop. 
to make sure that as they come before God in worship, it's not about, well, it, it doesn't really matter, anything will do. No, when it comes to worshiping Jehovah God, the creator of the universe, not just anything will do. He demands our very best. He demands that we be very serious about giving him exactly what he desires in worship. And thus being very precise about what he has commanded us. And so as we think about this for us, what lesson is God driving home for you and I today? I think we need to realize that worship must not be about our comfort, convenience, or enjoyment. Worship must be about God's glory. The passage that Christopher read for us a moment ago, we see in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, drives home this point for us under the New Covenant as well. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, in context there, I think he's primarily talking about how God appeared as a consuming fire on the top of Mount Sinai and shook the ground, showing his great power to the people of Israel. But that could just as easily be a reference to what he did to Nadab and Abihu, consuming them with his fire. The same God that lashed out uh, in judicial wrath against Nadab and Abihu for their irreverence, for their lack of seriousness about the worship they were bringing to him, is the same God that you and I serve today. And so when we think about worship, we need to recognize that the songs that we sang today, we were singing to the creator of the universe, to almighty God, Jehovah God, the very God who struck dead Nadab and Abihu, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who shook the ground at Mount Sinai. That is the God that you and I serve. So when it comes to worship, we need to be very serious about making sure that we are giving God the kind of awe and reverence, the acceptable worship that he requires from us as his people. And, and let me be straightforward with you. Uh, th this is one of the big concerns that, that I have about some of the restrictions that we've experienced with COVID um, that has required some of our members not to be able to get out, to, to tune in from home. I, I think that's a challenge that we need to be straightforward about. Uh, if, if for months on end, you've worshiped God from the comfort of your living room, uh, coffee in hand, uh, you know, here uh, observing worship and yet being limited and not being able to join in it in the same way that, that you would within the assembly, that, that's a challenge to make sure that we don't develop this casual uh, mindset towards worship. We need to make sure that, that whatever our situation has been, we maintain the seriousness of the God whom we are worshiping. And we not begin to think of worship as something that is about, uh, you know, my convenience. Uh, it's not something that I'm, I'm consuming, but something that I am actively participating in, expressing the reverence and awe that God desires. May we never forget who it is that we are worshiping. And may our worship always reflect the serious and reverent spirit that Jehovah God deserves. But let's continue from there. Uh, to the story of Uzzah. And we're going to see that this is a very similar situation in many ways, although I want to focus in on a slightly different aspect of this story. I think we'll also see that as God is serious about worship, as he's serious about reverence, he is also serious about obedience. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We read, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nachon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. What was the problem here? Why is it that God, in such a powerful and decisive way, showed his wrath, uh, his judicial wrath against Uzzah? If we're familiar with the Old Testament, we know that the ark should have never been transported on an ox cart to begin with. God had given specific instructions that the priests were to carry it and poles upon their shoulders. Uh, and that the ark was to, to be covered uh, and that they were to make sure that they didn't uncover it until they brought it to the, the temple, uh, or rather the tabernacle at that time. Uh, and then it was to be in the most holy place where only the high priest could approach it one time a year um, with uh, atoning sacrifices. But we might think, well, isn't it a little bit extreme to punish Uzzah? You know, he, he was just following orders after all, right? Um, you know, he, he's just kind of at the wrong place in the wrong time. And his intentions were good. He, he was trying to stabilize the ark, make sure that it didn't topple over. You know, isn't it a little bit unjust for God to, to here execute his wrath against Uzzah? Well, I, I want us to notice a few things about this passage. Um, first of all, notice who Uzzah is. Here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where is the ark coming from? And it's coming from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah, in fact, is one of the sons of Abinadab. And if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, we find out that after the ark came back from the Philistines, it stayed in the house of Abinadab, in fact, for 20 years. And one of uh, Abinadab's other sons, Eleazar, was actually consecrated to take care of the ark. And so for the last 20 years, Uzzah has lived in the same house as the ark. If anybody should have known how the ark needed to be treated, certainly Uzzah would be among those people. If anybody should have known how the ark needed to be transported, Uzzah, who had spent the last 20 years living along with the ark, should have known. And so... Uh, we shouldn't think of Uzzah here as some ignorant nobody, somebody who, you know, just happened to at the last minute get called in for this job uh, and just be following orders. No, Uzzah certainly was accountable to the Lord for, for knowing how the ark needed to be handled. And beyond that, the way that Uzzah is treating the ark is ultimately how the pagans would treat their idols. God was not an idol that needed man's help to avoid toppling over. You remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 5 when the ark first came to the house of Abinadab, where, where it had been? 
The ark had been stolen uh, by the Philistines in battle, and they had taken it home to the house of their god, Dagon. And here they're going to show the power of Dagon, that Dagon had given them victory over Jehovah, the god of the Israelites. And so we're going to bring his, his uh, footstool or his throne into the house of our god. Well, what happens the next morning when they come in? Dagon has fallen over. Um, and so the, the people of the Philistines come in and they say, oh, we, we need to help him back up. We need to make sure. And you can imagine they probably are securing him down, making sure this doesn't happen again. What, what an embarrassment that their idol had fallen over. Uh, and yet the next morning they come in. And despite whatever precautions they took that he wouldn't fall over, he's fallen over again and his hands and his head have fallen off. Here God is showing his power against these lifeless idols who need men to prop them up, who need men to keep them from falling. In fact, as the Old Testament addresses the sin of idolatry in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 4, God specifically addresses this mindset towards idols. He says, they decorate the idol with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it won't totter. Showing how ridiculous it is that here they're serving this God that, that they need to prop up and they need to make sure it doesn't fall over. Well, Uzzah here and walking along the ark and reaching out his hand to make sure God doesn't fall over is ultimately treating Jehovah God just like the pagans would treat the idols. That he needs his help. In fact, remember how God comes back from the Philistines? Well, the Philistines are, are being plagued by God. And so they decide, okay, if this is truly from the Lord, we're going to put this uh, ark on a cart with two milk cows. And we're, if, if God is truly causing all of this, he'll take it back. And what does God do? God directs those two milk cows all the way back to Israel. Who was driving the cart then? Who was making sure that it wouldn't fall over then? God didn't need that kind of help. God had that kind of power. Uh, and so we can see here how uh, Uzzah is accountable for uh, how he handles the ark. He should have known how to handle the ark uh, and how he is handling it ultimately is showing an irreverence, a lack of respect for the power of this God, uh, the true and living God. But I think we'll see the core problem was one of disobedience. We don't see God specifically, as he did in Leviticus 10 verse 3, making a statement about why this happened. But we see David drawing a conclusion about why this happened. Look over in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And we'll start reading in verse 11. It says, Then David summoned the priests Zadok and Abiathar and the Levites, Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shimei, uh, Eliel, and Abinadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. 
What does David conclude about this? What, what lesson was God driving home to him? If you're going to seek me, you better make sure that you're seeking me according to the rule, according to the ordinance, according to my word. You know, God's response to Uzzah is not, well, it's the thought that counts. You know, at least they're making some kind of effort to seek me. Close enough. The message that God is sending to his people is if you're going to seek me, you better make sure that first and foremost, you're seeking to be obedient to me. First and foremost, you are seeking me and my word. And so we need to make sure that if we're seeking God, if we're genuinely seeking God, we can't genuinely seek God without seeking him in accordance with his word. There is no true seeking of God without obedience. There's no true seeking of God without seeking his will in our lives. Yes, we do see certainly many times throughout the scripture that God is gracious and patient towards people's ignorance and immaturity at times, but that is not an excuse to be lax about following his commands. And just as with Nadab and Abihu, what God is addressing here is not just the outward circumstances of what is going on. He's addressing the heart that would cause such a thing to happen. The heart that was not genuinely seeking him out of obedience. And so God's message even for us today is that we must be serious and diligent about following the Father's will in all things. If you've been reading through, just finished Deuteronomy recently, you may remember how many times throughout Deuteronomy, at least in the ESV, he says, be careful. Be careful that you do all the words of this law. Be careful that you don't add to it or take from it. Be careful that you don't turn to the right hand or to the left. Uh, in fact, in Deuteronomy 32, he says, this commandment is your life. And so God is very serious about obedience. We see that for us under the new covenant as well. In Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 21, you may remember Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And yet I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It doesn't matter what kind of impressive religious activities we have been involved in. It doesn't matter what, what missions or church programs or mighty deeds we have done, if we have not been seeking God according to his will, according to his word, if we haven't been genuinely seeking the Father's will in all things, then we don't know him. We don't have a relationship with him. Whatever religious service we've been rendering, we haven't been rendering to him. We've set up some false God in our own minds that we're serving. Genuinely seeking God only happens by seeking to be obedient to his will. By taking seriously his commands and his instructions within the scriptures. And we see Jesus himself is an example of what obedience should look like. Eric talked about this a little bit uh, in uh, the Lord's Supper talk. But notice in John chapter 5, as Jesus talks about his role 
as the Son, coming in the flesh. He says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord or his own initiative, some versions say, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Later on in verse 30 of this passage, he says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Brethren, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, deity in the flesh, took on a role, an example for us of obedience, of submission to the Father's will, and he did not do anything that he did not see or hear from the Father, how much more should that describe you and me? How much more do we need to be careful that we're not doing anything on our own initiative, on our own accord? That, you know what, I think this is a pretty good idea. I think God would like this. Let's go ahead and do that. No, the lesson that we see from Jesus is I need to make sure that everything that I do is what I see and hear from the Father. Is in accordance with the rule, accordance with the ordinance, and in accordance with God's word within the scriptures. Colossians 3, verse 16 and 17. We're told here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Well, I think it means foundationally that everything that we do is to Jesus's glory is for his purposes and to his end. But what that also means is that it's according to his authority. And I think that there's a reason that's connected in the previous verse with the idea of the word of Christ dwelling richly within us, overflowing, even in the songs that we sing, teaching one another that God's word might be the focus among us as we encourage each other even in our assemblies, to make sure that everything that we're doing is accordance with his word so that everything we do, everything we speak is in the name of the Lord Jesus, to his glory, for his purposes, according to his will and under his authority. Now, I think sometimes when we emphasize obedience like this, uh, people will begin to think, well, that, that, that kind of sounds a little bit pharisaical. You know, you're just putting a whole lot of emphasis on the, the, the letter of the law. Um, you know, why, why don't we just focus on, the, on the, the spirit of the law? Well, I think what we're seeing is the Bible puts a great deal of emphasis on being very, uh, very diligent and precise in obedience. That's not something that we've come up with ourselves. But I think we need to recognize that as we talk about being Pharisaical, the Pharisees were never rebuked for being too strict in their obedience. Jesus didn't say to the Pharisees, you know, you guys, you're just too obedient. You know, why, why, why are you guys so obedient? <laughs> That's not his point at all. The, the Pharisees are rebuked for adding their own traditions to the law. They're rebuked for doing their deeds to be seen by men. They're rebuked for not practicing what they preach, for their hypocrisy. They're rebuked for self-righteousness and pride. They're rebuked for neglecting the weightier matters of the law. But Jesus never rebuked them for being too obedient. Look at Matthew 23. Matthew 23 and 
verse 23 and 24. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What is Jesus rebuking them for here? Is he rebuking them for straining out gnats? No, he's rebuking them for swallowing a camel. And by contrasting that, he's showing their hypocrisy. He's showing how when it comes to things that are outward, that are seen by men, that make them look religious, they are very exact and very precise. But he's exposing that their motives are not what they need to be because when it comes to the foundational principles of the scripture, they're swallowing the camel. And Jesus, in fact, says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. Jesus isn't saying, you guys are being too obedient. You should stop straining those gnats. He's saying, you have a much bigger problem that you need to take care of. You're swallowing the camel. And so we do need to be careful that we're not becoming prideful in our obedience that we're not neglecting the foundational spirit of the law, the attitude, the inner man that God desires for us to develop. But we need not to think that seriousness about obedience is somehow pharisaical within itself. In fact, the heart that is genuinely devoted to the Lord is going to be serious about obedience because we're serious about being pleasing to the Lord in all things, just as Jesus himself was. But I think this brings us to our third example that we want to look at, and that's Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. If you want to turn over to Acts chapter 5, we'll read the beginning of this account. Starting in verse 1, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. What is the problem here? Again, this is at the very outset of God's new covenant people, the New Testament church. What was the problem with Ananias and Sapphira? Well, ultimately, it wasn't about how much they gave or didn't give. And Peter makes that clear. He says, while it was unsold, wasn't it in your own possession? You could do with it whatever you wanted. And even after you sold it, You had that money at your disposal, but what he addresses, he says, why have you lied against the Holy Spirit? Uh, He says there at the very beginning uh, in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? God is serious about sincerity, about integrity. And so as we talk about obedience, as we talk about worship, we need to realize we're not just talking about the outer man. 
We're not just talking about going through the motions. No, God is serious about making sure that our service to him comes from the right kind of heart. And ultimately, this is the exact type of hypocrisy and dishonesty that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. Hypocrisy is one of the sins most consistently rebuked by Jesus. If you want to turn back to Matthew 23, where we were reading about the Pharisees, he talks in verse 23 and 24 about straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. Notice what he continues to say in verse 25. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here, they were very diligent about outward obedience about outward acts of worship to make sure that they looked good before men, but he says, inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. That's the problem with Ananias and Sapphira. Here, Ananias and Sapphira, what, what would motivate them to give part of what they had sold and yet lie and try to make it look like it was all that they were giving everything that they had received from that parcel of land? Well, obviously, they wanted it to look good before other people right? But it wasn't about genuinely caring about giving something to the Lord, to his work, to his people. It was about how it looked before others. That's exactly the problem that Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for. And as the New Testament church begins, Jesus makes it very clear. You can't just go through the motions. You can't just focus on the outward. You can't be like the Pharisees being whitewashed tombs and cups that have been cleansed on the outside and yet inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, God is serious about integrity, about sincerity. And we see this throughout the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had told his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You might think, them initially hearing that, they might think, well, how can our righteousness exceed the scribes and Pharisees? You know, they're, they're straining out every little gnat. Well, Jesus goes on to tell them exactly how. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, you shall not hate your brother. It's not just about murder, it's about the heart behind it. It's not just about committing adultery, it's about the lust behind it. The way in which we need to exceed the righteousness of, of the scribes and Pharisees is for it to be a righteousness that genuinely is coming from the inner man, from the heart, from a transformed character. Later on in Matthew chapter 6, and verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The very first example that he gives, guess what it is? When you give to the needy, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the Pharisees do. And so, here Jesus is driving home the point, if you're going to serve me, it has to start in the hearts. Again, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 through 9. Matthew 15, verse 7, Jesus says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips. 
but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God is serious about worship, we said. God is serious about obedience, we said. But we can be worshiping him outwardly in all the right ways, and yet worshiping him in vain. If we honor him with our lips, and yet our hearts are not in it, our hearts are far from him, then we're no better than Ananias and Sapphira, or we're no better than, than the Pharisees. Um, our reverence and our obedience cannot be merely outward. They must be the response of a genuine, wholehearted devotion. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, as Paul begins his letter to young Timothy, tells them the aim of our charge, or some versions say the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Why have we opened our Bibles today? Why is it that we come together constantly to meditate upon God's instructions? What it needs to be is to develop a true, genuine, sincere, inward character, a love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. All of those are references to the genuineness of the inner man. If we are not interested in fully giving our hearts to the Lord. If we're here for any other purpose, then we are wasting our time. That's the goal of the instruction. That's why we have our Bibles with us today. It's so that we can make sure that the inner man is who God wants it to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It doesn't matter what I say, what gifts I possess, what sacrifices I make or service I render. If I don't have love, I am useless, I am valueless, I am hopeless. I accomplish nothing, I gain nothing, I am nothing. That's why in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked about the greatest command, he tells us that the entire law and prophets hinges on love. That we should love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. And brethren, if we don't get that right, it doesn't matter what else we get right. If we have not first truly given our hearts to the Lord, then it doesn't matter how much my outward acts of worship appear to be reverent and appear to be uh, expressing awe before the Lord. It doesn't matter how much I've been in particular about being obedient to God's word at every aspect of the outward actions, if that's not motivated first by a heart that is truly given to the Lord, then my worship is in vain. God is serious about worship and serious about obedience, but not just on the surface level. 
it wasn't just about the incense. It wasn't just about the cart. It was about the heart of the worshipers, the heart that wasn't taking God seriously, that wasn't taking worship seriously, that wasn't taking his word seriously. What about our hearts today? Have we heard the message that God is driving home? Sin is serious. Sin that infects the inner man, that, that infects the, this uh, image of God within our souls, that breaks his perfect character within us. The wages of sin is death. By God's grace, every single one of us here Though we have broken his perfect image within us, though we have failed, though we have rebelled against him and made him our enemy, made ourselves his enemies, we have been given an opportunity to be forgiven, to be cleansed, that our hearts can be transformed and be what God intends for them to be. Have we responded to his invitation of grace? If you recognize today that you haven't been giving God the, the reverence, the obedience that he deserves, that you haven't been taking him seriously, won't you change? Won't you take whatever steps are necessary with the opportunities that God has given you today to be the kind of man or woman that God desires for you to be? If there's any way that we can help you in that, that's why we're here. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart a good conscience and sincere pain. It's your transformed character. And so if you need to confess some sin before these brethren, that we can pray for you, that we can support you and help you as you seek to change, won't you do that now? If you've never committed your life to the Lord, if you've never put to death the old man in the waters of baptism, confessed your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and turned away from your old life, that you might, through the power of the resurrection, be raised to a new life. Won't you do that today? If there's any way that we can help you in your relationship with the Lord, we ask that you'll make it known by coming to the aisle as we stand and sing together.